0: Hi folks, thanks for tuning in to episode 9 of the Michiana People podcast. As usual, I'm still looking for 15 to 30 seconds of original music to open the podcast. If you'd like to help me out with that, email me at scott at com. You will get my thank you and credit for the opening song. Today's guest is Randy DeClean. Randy grew up in Mishawaka and went on to work at the Pentagon and with Vice President Dick Cheney. We had a great talk about his experiences. Make sure to check out Randy's podcast, the 202 at the 202online.com. I think you're going to like this conversation. We are sponsored by Mapletronics Computers. Mapletronics can help you with anything from a virus-ridden computer to managing a large network. There is a free gift waiting for you at mapletronics.com forward slash Michiana people. Go get it. We are also sponsored by MSW. Grant at MSW designed my website and logo. If you need help with your social media presence, Grant is the guy to talk to. Check out MSW at facebook.com forward slash MSW Michiana. And here's the show. Welcome, folks, to the Michiana People podcast. My guest today is Randy DeClean. Randy grew up in the Michiana area and currently resides in Washington, D.C., now, I know this is a Michiana people podcast. I'm supposed to interview people from Michiana, but Randy started here and he's doing very well. So it's my podcast. I do what I want. <laughs> uh, Randy uh, currently works at K Global, a Washington, D.C. based full service communications firm. He's also a visiting assistant professor at the University of Colorado Boulder. He has his own podcast called The 202, which is a nonpartisan interview show dedicated to talking about the history of our political system and keeping those stories alive. Randy's resume is long and prestigious. A few of his notable responsibilities included working at the uh, Pentagon as special assistant for strategic communications, being deputy press secretary for Vice President Dick Cheney, And most notably, Randy was one of the best baggers at Kroger on Merrifield in Mishawaka. (laughs) Uh, One of the best I ever saw. Welcome, Randy. Thank you, Scott. It's nice to uh, be here and to see you. Right, I've Randy. Known you, uh, I've known you a long time. Yeah, and I uh, I pegged you uh, a couple months back to be on the podcast, and I offered to do a Skype interview, and you said, "No way, I want to uh, talk to you when I'm here." So here he is, sitting at my kitchen table. And I appreciate you coming out. No problem. One of the things I wanted to talk about is your your career has. Pretty much touch politics in one way or another, pretty much from the time you started. What, thinking back to when you were in grade school and high school, what first got you interested in politics?
1: Yeah, you know, I've thought about that before, and it was really a product of of my upbringing. So um, I went, I graduated from Penn High School in 92, Mm -hmm. and before that, um, went to Grissom and St. Bavo's and Stanley Clark and a number of schools. But growing up on Rose Park with uh, my parents, my dad was on the city council. Okay. Uh, and the news was always part of dinner. Right. Uh, the newspaper was always a big part of the day. Mm-hmm. And so just growing up, you know, talking about world events and talking about politics and paying attention to what's happening in Mishawak and South Bend and Washington. Uh, It just was always part of the day. So I can remember, you know, 92 was the first time I voted in a presidential election. But I remember being disappointed in 88 that I couldn't vote. Uh Um, So it was just part of the culture of kind of what
0: our household was growing up. It was a big part of everyday current events. Right. And you've—I uh, I think that passion has kind of grown throughout the years because you really—I uh, I know you have an opinion, but you've got a real passion for for understanding how uh, politics uh, shapes our country. And
1: yeah, I do, and I—I'm still as interested in it as I ever have been. I mean, it's fascinating and. You know, my favorite part of the day, frankly, is reading the newspaper. Right. And the newspaper and a cup of coffee uh, and some silence or maybe some light music is, there's very few things I enjoy more than that. Right. And doing that, you know, helps fuel the passion of understanding the world and government and why things are happening and why they're not happening. Right. It's definitely, it's been a part of my life um, as long as I can remember.
0: Right. Right. And you actually, and this has been a couple of years ago, but you uh, turned me on to a uh, publication called The Week oh, yeah. uh, when I was looking. I. I Reached out to you to try to find something that kind of puts all the, uh, different perspectives into, into one, one nice, neat magazine. And the week is really good because it, uh, it comes from both, both sides of the uh, aisle and, and, and then it does a little recap on, on what these stories are really about. So that's, uh, that was neat. I appreciated that. I'm gonna jump around a little bit, but uh, one of the things that intrigued me is uh, you spent quite a bit of time working at the Pentagon um, can you tell me what you did there and and you were actually there in a pretty tumultuous period we were we were in the middle of a war right and uh, the the political scene was pretty rough at that point right. can you tell me uh, about your time there?
1: Yeah, I worked there in 2008 and 2009, and I kind of worked there now, but I'll talk about that in a minute. Okay. But in 08 and 09, uh, I worked for Pete Guerin, who was a used to be a congressman from Texas. Okay. And he got to know then Governor Bush. Mm-hmm. And when Governor Bush became President Bush, Guerin came with him to Washington and had various jobs and eventually ended up the Secretary of the Army. Okay. Which I didn't know this before I worked there, but... The services are two-headed monsters. There's a civilian head, and that's Uh the secretary, and then there's the uniform head, which is the chief, at least for the Army, um, and they're equals. And so I went in and interviewed with uh, Pete Guerin, and he started talking about the Army and pentagon and it was my interview with him was the second time i'd ever been in the pentagon so i hadn't spent a lot of time there okay and i looked at him and i said you know sir i have to tell you i don't know anything about the army at all and he got this big smile on his face and he said well great that's exactly what i'm looking for (laughs) so he wanted somebody to come and help him with communications that brought a perspective that was not right the typical army one Uh so a few weeks after that i started working for him and i was his special assistant so i just reported to uh, Secretary Guerin on whatever communications related, you know, projects he had going on, mm-hmm. and the Pentagon's an interesting place. Um, over 20,000 people work there. Okay, it's one of the world's, if not the country's, biggest office building. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it doesn't go up, of course, it's right it's wide. Um, but so it's interesting, and in, I think when you see people in there for the first time, maybe taking a tour or something, they expect it to be like all this secret stuff, uh-huh. which I think there's probably elements, certainly, of that in the building. Mm-hmm. But generally, it's like a office building. Like, right. There's 30 restaurants in there. Oh, wow. There's fast food places. There's uh-huh. coffee shops. Huh. Uh, and just people, people, and people. Uh, and it's all a mix of uniformed military people, civilians. Mm-hmm. There's reporters in there. Um it's like a big office building. I'd say it's a little underwhelming for people that are expecting something ah. secret and fancy, right? When they go there, right? And now, actually, so oh eight and oh nine, um, I worked there every day. You know, that was my job to go there and work for Secretary Guerin. Now, K Global, where I work, we have. Uh, a team of people that works with Army Public Affairs and a team of people that works with Navy Public Affairs mm-hmm. that are government contractors. Right. So I oversee the work that they do as contractors for the Army and the Navy. So I'm not there every day, but I go there maybe once a week or every other week and just check up on them and make sure that they're getting done what they need to get Okay. Done.
0: That I mean, that sounds fascinating. I and I'm not sure if this was a part of your work in the Pentagon um, or if this was something you did uh, uh, for for another s- source or cause. But uh, I know you spent a, a year in Afghanistan. Correct. And we and we've talked a few times about that. And I think that. First of all, I, I know it touched you, and I know it changed your perspective on a lot of things. Yep. Can you tell me a little bit about your time there and how it changed your view of uh, of war and also our our, our fighting force? I, we, If you haven't been a soldier, you don't know about it. And if you haven't spent a year in the trenches with them, I don't think you know, know about it either. But I tell me a little bit true. about that. Yeah, so it was 2010
1: that I was there. Um, so, long story, still kind of long. Uh-huh. In, 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 08, in 08 09, when I worked at the Pentagon for the Secretary, I met a general named Tony Cucolo. Okay. C U C O L O. He was a major general, so he was a two star general. Okay. And his job at the Pentagon, he was the chief of public affairs. So he was in charge of all public affairs for the Army. Okay. And then he. Uh, switched jobs and became the commanding general for the 3rd Infantry Division, Uh which is out of Fort Stewart, Georgia. Uh, And then they were deployed to Iraq in Tikrit, which is about 100 miles north of Baghdad. Mm -hmm. And General Kukulow and I became friends when uh, we both worked at the Pentagon, and he asked me to go to Iraq with him as a civilian. Mm -hmm. Similar job to what I did for Mr. Guerin, basically provide a perspective that was not army Mm -hmm. you know i'm a lawyer and i've worked in politics and just a very different background than army people so i reported to general kukulow who where we were in takrit he was in charge of 21,000 troops uh the seven provinces north of baghdad Mm -hmm. so the part of iraq that borders iran turkey and syria okay and it's very diverse with sunni and shia and kurds and Um, Mosul is there, Mm -hmm. the Kurdistan region. It's really where all the action is. South of Baghdad, it's much more of the same types of people, and there's less conflict. So we were there. I was there for a year with 3rd Infantry Division. um, And basically my job was to help with reporters and politicians and uh, members of Congress and different folks that would come in and make sure that their visits went smooth, Mm -hmm. and we were delivering the messages properly to them. Right. you know, there's so many lessons that I learned, but a couple that stand out immediately is the um, the logistical element that it takes to have this functioning army. Right, and so many people have in their mind, and I certainly did before, that you know everybody over there is like a trained killer all the time, walking uh-huh. around shooting at Al Qaeda. Uh uh-huh. Which there is people that do that. Right. But when you think about the twenty one thousand troops that were part of our. Our group there, um, there's cooks and there's truck drivers and uh-huh. there's pilots and there's people that clean the offices. Mm-hmm. And like most of the people, 99% of the people in the army do like quote unquote normal things. Right. Uh, and then very few are over there shooting at people and, uh-huh. and doing all of this stuff. And it just never really clicked with me the kind of logistics that it takes mm-hmm. to operate. A fighting force of—I mean, we had twenty-one thousand just in our part. Right but at the time, there was around a hundred thousand wow. troops there. And the other thing that it—that sticks in my mind that um, really, you know, came through to me was that it's not the—that it's the years in the life, not the, or it's the life in the years, uh-huh. not the years in the life. Okay, like we had twenty-seven people that um, that were killed while we were there, and. That were part of our group, and mm. it, it just changes the way you look at the world and think about that when right. you when you see you know some twenty something mm-hmm. get killed by yeah. an IED or different things. Right. You just it completely and totally changes the way you view life and death, mm-hmm. um, and made me much more appreciate the moment, right, um, and value the things I get to do every day because I mean it sounds so trite, but like tomorrow's not guaranteed right and when you see that up close
0: that it hits home in a way that that it never did before right right how did it, how how did you see it affect the young guys there there i mean you got to you got to see those guys and and you probably knew some of them that were actually killed in action mm-hmm. how how did it affect them after they knew one of their one of their comrades had fallen you know i think everybody processes things differently but that
1: generation is absolutely remarkable yeah. um, because after 9-11, if you signed up for any of the services, it wasn't if you were going to go to Iraq or Afghanistan, it was when. Uh-huh. And so, you know, this wasn't like, say, in the 90s when people were signing up and you get money to go to college and whatever. And the odds right. of going somewhere were were not very high. Uh-huh. So... I just think they're a remarkable group of people when on their face they look young and maybe like they haven't shaved and uh-huh. uh, and all this stuff. But yet they make the conscious choice right. to sign up for the military, knowing that they're going to go at, at the time to have to go fight Al-Qaeda. Right. Um and then to see their buddies, some of them not come home, mm-hmm. but they still carry on with the mission and, and function every day. It's just part of the, I guess, the the reality of doing that. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know that everybody's not going to come back. Yeah. Um, and generations before dealt with it. It's not like this is the first one. Right, right. In the Vietnam and World War Two. you know, the numbers of casualties were... Considerably higher than now. Right. Um, But still, the reality of war is a lot of people aren't going to come back. Right. And with modern medicine and things, the challenges that we're facing now are unlike ever before. Mm -hmm. Because so many people are making it. Right. That weren't making it. Yeah. You know, I think in Vietnam, about 55,000 Americans were killed. Mm -hmm. And... And combined in Iraq and Afghanistan, it's somewhere around Mm 10,000. I think it's a little more than that. Right. But one of the reasons that that's so low is because people survive injuries on the battlefield that they never did before.
0: Right. Right. Um, So. Yeah. I actually work with a... a gentleman who is an engineer for our company and i didn't know his history but he was a medic uh, over in afghanistan and i always knew that he was one of those guys because our guys can get flustered and upset about things and he just never did and i spent a, a long evening while we were working with a client and i spent a long evening with him and he kind of told me some stories and i'm like the the reason why he never gets flustered is because this is all small potatoes compared to what, to he's, what he's been seen. through. Because he, you know, he was in he, he he was in the middle of firefights and and all that, and just really everything else is just small stuff. And I was there with a
1: guy. You were just saying that reminded me of a quick story. His yeah. name was Tom Roberts. And so General Cuculo really valued civilians. And so mm. that's why he asked me to go and be his communications advisor, and he asked Tom Roberts to come along, too, to help advise him on working with the uh, training, the Iraqi police, and and Mm. the Iraqi army, which was part of our mission. Tom Roberts was 72 years old. Wow. And he had done two tours in Vietnam Uh as an MP, and then became a U.S. Marshal, Uh and then retired, and then... General Kuklo asked him to go to Iraq <laughs> at seventy-two, and he went. Yeah. Uh, and Tom and I were battle buddies, which what that means is somebody always has to know where you are, uh-huh. uh, at all times, right? Even if you're just going to sleep, he would know that. You know, Randy went to go sleep, uh-huh. and so Tom and I had three meals a day together for close to a year, and and we were battle buddies. And um, the first couple weeks there. I'm not ashamed to admit, we were a little rough mentally because our base would get rocketed. And, uh-huh. and I'd been to Iraq before with the secretary, but just for a few days, uh-huh. uh, you know, planning to stay a year. So in no way was I like contemplating going back, but I was having trouble sleeping and I just hadn't sorted it out. Right what was happening and Tom I was expressing this to Tom one morning over breakfast and he like doesn't even break stride as he's still shoveling food in his mouth and he says you know Randy when it's your time it's your time (laughs) it's nothing to worry about and I looked at him and I was like Tom that's not how I look at the world yeah we'll have to sort this out so that you know in the in the coming weeks and I have to tell you he was 100% right yeah after a few weeks I just you just accept kind of that mantra right you can't worry about them rocketing your base or right. whatever. When it's your time, it's your time. And right. when you don't worry about it, it's amazing how you were able to like find a peace uh-huh. and just enjoy the day,
0: and it kind of was what it was. Right, right. And That's cool. Tom helped me uh, realize that. He's a really cool guy. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to switch gears a little bit and keep you on your toes. Uh, I have known you for a long time, and from what I see, you have a passing interest in baseball. slightly slightly so uh first of all who's your team well you know that's a
1: tricky question Uh uh-huh that i get a lot of heat from from people i grew up a cubs fan i I know that and i was like in 2003 i can vividly remember crying when they lost game six and game seven to the marlins yeah um but i have lived in dc now for a little over 13 years Mm -hmm. and so I have to say my allegiances have somewhat switched to the Orioles and the Nationals. Okay, okay. So I, some people, D.C. really is home now, Yeah, and so it's just part yeah. of my
0: evolution as a okay. person. I just want to make sure that was documented. Are there any <laughs> parks that you have not been to? Yeah, there is quite a few that Okay, I, I haven't been to.
1: I've been to about, I think, 31 parks, but okay. um, 15 of them are closed. okay so I haven't been to about half the ones now. And the problem I'm running into, cause I travel a lot for mm-hmm. work and for pleasure and go to games. Yeah. There's a few that I really like Seattle, San Francisco, Oakland, Colorado. Uh-huh. And so instead of going to the ones I haven't been to, mm-hmm. I just go back to the ones that I really like. Okay. And okay. so I, maybe I need to break that streak, but the, the thought of like going to spend a weekend in Arlington, Texas, doesn't really
0: yeah appeal to me. Right, I'd rather go back to San Francisco for the 10th yeah. Hour. I know there's a period of time in the summer. I don't know if you get a, a sabbatical or what or what the deal is, but it's just all baseball all the time. And uh, uh, I'm very it's fortunate fun to follow yeah. Yeah, thank
1: you. There's a group of friends we do. We call it the baseball trip, and every year we. Lately, it's been the Orioles. We take about 10 days and uh-huh. go follow the Orioles wherever yeah. they're going. Yeah.
0: It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's uh, kind of like following the Grateful Dead, isn't it? Kind <laughs> of. <laughs> um, what was it like working with Dick Cheney? You know, that's really how I
1: got to Washington. It was, I did uh, politics in Indiana mostly, some in Illinois from like 92 to 03. Mm-hmm. Um, every kind of race county race, congressional race, statewide race. And through a series of uh, fortunate events, you know, you got to be lucky, but to some extent, you create your own luck, too, I believe. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's both. But I got hired as Cheney's deputy press secretary at the end of 2003. Um, and it was amazing. You know, I arrived in Washington on a Friday and started working at the White House on Monday. Mm-hmm. And it was during the 2004 campaign, so when Bush and Cheney ran against uh, Kerry and Edwards— mm-hmm and i had only worked there a few weeks when i was also fortunate enough to get put on the airplane on air force two so in 2004 basically i went everywhere that cheney went mm-hmm. hundreds and hundreds of trips during the campaign and yeah. got to go to the debate and the convention and you know to have the opportunity to see a uh, a presidential race up close like that mm-hmm. was something i'll never forget and Dick Cheney, somebody that I uh, think a lot of, and so to have the privilege to work for him at a time when you know 9/11 hadn't happened too long before that, mm-hmm. um, it was a real honor and a privilege. And other than spending a year in Iraq, I'd say helping get Bush and Cheney reelected in 2004 is what I'm probably most proud of professionally.
0: You know, I uh, no matter what side of the the political stage you sit on. Dick Cheney is one of the most intelligent people, as far as understanding politics, understanding foreign policy, and understanding our history in war, that I've ever seen. And anytime I get a chance to see him talk, he. It, we all know he's no nonsense and he he gets down to it but but that guy if you could if you could take his brain and and put it into a computer somehow it'd be one of the smartest computers out there as far as uh, our, our history and politics and I,
1: I agree with you I think he's very smart and he said many times and it's one of the reasons that it was a privilege to work for him was the he woke up every day with a single-minded focus of keeping America safe mm-hmm and, you know, during after 9-11, there was no attacks on our soil during the Bush administration. Mm-hmm. And frankly, even President Obama, who I'm not the biggest fan of, but um, from a national security standpoint, as far as protecting the homeland, he's carried that tradition on mm-hmm. in that it's not an accident that right. we're not attacked right. in the United States. Mm-hmm. And those policies and kind of that, as you say, no nonsense approach, I think, started with the Bush administration mm-hmm. and to some extent. Obama's even tougher on some of the
0: right on
1: things like that.
0: Right. Um, it's funny. I was I was talking to another guest on. Uh, uh, she's uh, finishing her political science degree, and we talked about politics. And it was mostly on the local level, but it's it's funny. Every everybody seems to want change at, at some point, mm-hmm. but when that politician takes office no matter what level they take about 80% of what they do is just keeping the ball rolling on what their predecessor did. Sure, <laughs> And uh, it's, I, I, just, I, I just, I think it's funny that we're in America. We're all the, the word change comes up so often and it's, it's not so much change as making sure that we're crossing our T's and dotting our eyes on, on the things that we're already put in place. What are you doing? Yeah. You know, with Cheney, I'm reminded I got to do a lot of fun things
1: with him. The convention was in New York that year. That was my first trip ever to New York. I stayed at the Plaza Hotel, uh-huh. which is right there off Central Park. It was it was a great year. Right. Um, but probably my favorite trip was in, I don't remember the exact date, but it was late October 2004. We fl- flew into South Bend mm-hmm. on Air Force Two and stayed at the Marriott in downtown South Bend. Yeah. And my mom and dad... Uh, got to greet the vice president. Oh, He cool. got off the plane. Yeah, uh, and then the next day, we, they weren't campaigning. In, in, we weren't campaigning in, in Indiana because they had that in the bag. But mm-hmm. it was a bus trip through uh, southern Michigan,
0: uh-huh.
1: and there was no airport in Michigan big enough to land Air Force Two, so they landed in South Bend, and we stayed here. And then uh-huh. that next morning, all the Bush Cheney O four buses were lined up in downtown South Bend, and then we went off and did the bus trip. But to get to come home. Mm-hmm. Uh, with him on Air Force Two and land in South Bend was something I'll never forget.
0: Yeah, that's cool. One of the things I want to I go to that uh, kind of intrigued me, this is something I believe you did through uh, K-Global. Um, tell me about the work you did uh, for the Georgian parliamentary elections. Uh, th- that seems like a really cool project that you took on and kind of really Help them in the in the cause of liberty yeah, we did that at,
1: uh, at k Global and I did something similar when I was at Ketchum, which is a big p r firm for for the Russians mm-hmm. um, you know Putin now, for example, is very defiant and doesn't seem too interested in what the West thinks, but people forget and i don't remember if it was o seven I think it was o seven he was the time man of the year, uh-huh, and he Ketchum worked for. The Kremlin to help the Russians varnish their image in the U.S. Because uh-huh. now he clearly doesn't care what the U.S. thinks, but it was, <laughs> it was different then. Yeah, and similar to in Georgia, um, they hired K Global, and part of our job was to take this guy. His name was uh, Bidzina Ivanishvili, mm-hmm. and he wanted to become the prime minister of Georgia. Uh, but as is the case in so many countries, in order to do that, he had to have the right image in the united states Mm -hmm. um and so his political party was called the georgian dream Mm -hmm. uh and he hired us to help take the image of himself and of the party Mm -hmm. uh, so that influencers in the u.s found them to be acceptable Mm -hmm. and i did similar work in lebanon for somebody and it's really interesting in a fine line in that you know, these foreign people need kind of a wink and a nod from the powers that be in the US that, you know, they're okay, mm-hmm. but it can't be too strong of a wink and a nod. Yeah. Because then the people there think that they're just a puppet of right. of the United States. <laughs> uh huh. But because we're, you know, we have interests in so many places, um, it's amazing that somebody running for parliamentary election in a country on the other side of the world like Georgia. Uh huh. Has an active lobbying and PR effort in the United States, right? Right. But it's just it's just part of how
0: it is, and there's dozens and dozens and dozens of countries where things like that happen. Right. That's cool. So one of the reasons I started doing the podcast is I listened to your podcast. Uh, you you do a podcast out of DC called the Two O Two. Tell me a little bit about that podcast, why you started doing it, and what it's all about. Yeah, I started a few years ago, and
1: it's really, you know, we started when we started this conversation talking about news and, um, you know, public affairs and things like that. And it's always been a part of my life. And, you know, you go through different stages in your life, and you evolve and change. And I used to, for a long time, was very involved in partisan politics. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, my job was dependent on winning or losing elections. Right. (laughs) And that hasn't been the case now since... Two thousand five. So for eleven years, you know, I'm as interested in politics as ever, uh-huh. but not so much in a partisan kind of way. Uh-huh. Like, I mean, I'm still Republican. My views haven't changed, and I think Obama is the worst president ever, and, and uh-huh. I'm going to vote for Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders. But I don't wear it on my sleeve in the way that I used to. Right. Um, and so I started this podcast as an appreciation for politics, mm-hmm. and it's not part. It's not partisan and through the communications work i've done i've been fortunate enough to know a lot of politicians and reporters mm-hmm. and so i like to talk to them about just events that happened right um in a in a from a historical sense mm-hmm. and so a lot of these guys you know we we talk about the day reagan was assassinated and, mm-hmm. or i mean uh, shot in 19, march of 1981 and right. what it was like to be in washington that day mm-hmm. or the 92 race when it you know was down to bill clinton and jerry brown talked to the reporters that were traveling with the clinton campaign uh-huh. um or i had senator richard luger on the other day and talked to him about you know it's kind of a forgotten part of history that in 1980 and in 1988 he was a finalist to be vice president yeah. under reagan and under the first bush and so just to talk about those stories whether it be with the the politician or a reporter that was covering it. Is so much more interesting to me than something that is more, the more partisan nature of things. Yeah. And I also try to do them evergreen. So in the sense that, you know, we're not going to talk about Donald Trump or uh-huh. some thing in the moment. Right. It's looking back. So you could listen to the first interview that we did two years ago, and it would be just as relevant today as it was then. Right, well that.
0: right very it's a it's a very good podcast if you have any interest in politics at all or the history of uh, politics it's a very good one to listen to one one of the things i got out of your uh richard luger uh interview was uh i walked away from that asking myself who is the genius that uh chose quail over luger <laughs> for for the vp nod <laughs> You know,
1: some things, in hindsight, you wonder, how did that happen? Yeah, yeah. Quail's one of them. uh, Sarah Palin is maybe one of them. Yeah. You never know. You just want
0: to shake them and say, (laughs) what were you thinking? (laughs) Um Kind of winding down to the to the to the last questions I have. One one of the things I wanted to talk about is uh, Randy is a very very busy person, and I want I wanted to speak to his character a little bit. Uh, when my daughter moved to the D.C. area a few years ago, I hadn't talked to Randy for at least a couple years, and I pinged him on Facebook and uh, said, "Help! My daughter is uh, moving all by herself, uh, straight out of college to the D.C. area." area where should she live what should she do and all this kind of stuff and you replied a couple times and you said uh here's my cell phone just give me a call and you actually i think you took jesse to a nationals game and, and we went
1: i think we went to a wizards game a nationals game.
0: yeah and and actually made her feel a lot more comfortable and as busy as you are you took time for for an old old friend and uh helped my daughter out and i really appreciated that so I know when you uh, deal with Randy, that's the type of guy you're dealing with. And I, I really appreciated that. Well,
1: I appreciate you saying that. The, You know, we've known each other a long time. I was thinking about as I was driving over here, I think we probably met in 89 or 90. Yeah. Is my best guess. Yeah. It was It was in that area. We had a mutual friend. And, you know, um, it's hard to believe I'm 41. I don't. <laughs> my brain doesn't feel like that. It it's hard to believe I'm like, almost 52. <laughs> It seems like not long ago that I was working at Kroger's on Merfield. Yeah. But, um, you know, staying in touch with people from over the years is is important. And I've never forgot that I'm from Indiana. Uh-huh. And, um, I think keeping that perspective is important. Well, I don't live here anymore, and I really, frankly, consider Washington home now. Right. Um, I mean, I always remember where I'm from. and. It's great to come back and just do little things like every time I'm back, I drive by Kroger's. uh-huh I drive by the house on rose park where i where I grew up right I drive by Penn high school uh-huh I did that yesterday for about an hour, I just drove by the old haunts, went to the west End bakery,
0: yeah, oh yeah, and it help. uh I think it helps keep me gives me perspective and keeps me grounded uh-huh. I've got a nephew that lives right by the West End Bakery right now. So I, I don't know if I could get up every morning and smell that and not go over and buy a dozen donuts and be 500 pounds. I think <laughs> so.
1: the bear claw with nuts is my favorite. Yeah. We <laughs> talked about Iraq. That was one of the things that I can remember missing. Yeah. And a friend said, uh, a friend that I went to high school with, she said she was going to mail me one uh-huh. she never did but i'm kind of glad she didn't it takes two to three weeks to get mail there
0: right so i don't think that bear claw would have been very good though. right right uh, as one last thing I, I know you don't uh have as much of a stake as you used to but the the current race for president is there anything about this race that the that you may understand that the media is not reporting that's a lot of pressure.
1: I know. Something <laughs> like that. Um, I'm not sure. I don't know. You know. I was thinking about the race this morning in anticipation that I was thinking you might ask me about it. And uh-huh. probably what strikes me more than anything is, I think it's just kind of a sad state of affairs that this is the batch of people that it's down to. Yeah. When you look at the five people that are still standing. Right. Like Trump and Cruz and Kasich mm-hmm. and Hillary and, and Bernie Sanders that... I don't know if it's the process or I don't know what it is, but yeah. I feel like we could we could do better mm-hmm. than that. Um but it's fascinating, you know, nobody thought Trump would have had a chance. Right. And now he is clearly the front runner for the Republicans. Right. And one thing I think the media does massively underreport is how well Bernie Sanders is doing. Right. I mean, he's like a borderline crazy 75-year-old man. Uh-huh. Who's hanging with Hillary Clinton, right. the most accomplished politicians of our lifetime, right, right, uh, and the media has some never-ending obsession with Donald Trump, uh-huh. which I guess I could see why because he's very interesting and yeah, entertaining and fun to cover, right. But Hillary Clinton, I think, is incredibly underperforming, right, given her competition, yeah, yeah. And I-
0: Somebody like Joe
1: Biden or uh, some other credible people that thought about running, I'm guessing they regret it because she seems to be ripe for the the taking. I mean, Bernie Sanders is winning the woman vote against her. Mm -hmm. I mean, women are choosing a crazy 75-year-old white guy. Yeah. (laughs) Over Hillary Clinton, like that's really surprising. Yeah, yeah.
0: One of the things I uh, I thought was interesting I, I heard on uh, another podcast was uh, in regards to Trump the the analogy was given that every one of these other other uh, candidates are running this race like it's their life and it's if if they don't win this then their life is over whereas trump just doesn't care he's <laughs> he, whatever happens he's still donald trump and he can right. still do do what whatever he wants to do and so that's why I don't think he could. I don't think he has ever had a filter, or will ever have a filter. But that's why he can get away with going through with no filter, because I think people do appreciate that the you don't have a. The only agenda you have is what you say, and and that seems uh, that that seems interesting. Uh, I, I do have to agree that the the five or six people we've got to uh, choose from is probably one of the worst I've ever seen. However, (laughs) I don't know that, I don't know that uh, being president is such a good thing for some of the, some of the people who are more qualified anymore. They, I think a lot of them are shying away from it because they think they can do better outside of being president. So,
1: yeah, I think that's probably true. And, you know, with Trump, I'm not sure that this didn't start as a lark, frankly. Yeah. And then it ended up like catching fire. Yeah. yeah. Because, you know, similar to what Obama did, what I think is really interesting about Donald Trump is Obama brought a group of people into the political process that normally did not participate. Mm-hmm. Or Trump is doing the exact same. Thing, right. A different group of people. Right. But he is getting a completely different group of people. But he <laughs> is getting people to vote and go to rallies that would not do it. Right. Um, so, you know, there's something to be said for that. That's good mm-hmm. that there's new people participating. Um, the trick for him will be, you know, Obama was able to hold the Democratic base mm-hmm. and add these new people. Right. Trump's added these new people. But it's yet to be seen, I think, if he can hold the hold the Republican base. Right. Because if you don't hold that, the new people are just replacing the old people. Right. And you end up losing. Right. Um I really like Jeb Bush. I was disappointed that he mm-hmm. that he didn't do more, but uh I, Donald Trump was correct pegging him low energy. He was pretty Yeah. He was pretty low energy. Yeah. Yeah. And didn't inspire um too much. Yeah.
0: Which is uh, kind of out of character for a bush, too. Of the three bushes that rose to political prominence, he is the most low energy of the three. I right, think. right. Well, Randy, I really appreciate you sitting down and talking to me. Uh, any parting thoughts? No, it's nice to talk to you, Scott. It's
1: uh, I appreciate you asking me to be on the show. Uh, it's always nice to uh, talk to talk to old friends and think about. It just seems like yesterday that we were. Yeah. Running around together twenty six yeah. years ago. Oh yeah. Um, so I'm happy to see the podcast doing well. Uh, it's nice to see you, and just thanks for the thanks for the opportunity to talk.
0: Oh, right. Um, when I uh, post this, I will post uh, links to your podcast and uh, also to uh, K Global. And uh, if if you ever get a chance to talk to Randy, if you ever see him in town, he's definitely uh, a guy who will uh, enlighten you on a lot of things. Thanks, Randy. Thank you, Scott.